uh, this morning we're going to be uh, in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. So hopefully you've got your Bibles, and hopefully you know how to find Colossians. In fact, we just finished a series in Philippians, so if you know how to find Philippians in your Bible, you're in luck because Colossians is just a few pages from Philippians. So we'll go ahead and turn there, and we'll get into that text in just a moment. But this morning I want to be thinking as we ponder Advent, as we think about the Advent season, I want to be thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked yourself how one person can be both completely God and completely man? How can a simple flesh and blood man from Galilee also be the the mighty God of the universe? How is that possible? How can a a full human nature and a full divine nature add up to one person? Did somebody get the math wrong here? You'd think that one plus one wouldn't necessarily equal one, but it seems to. How can Jesus be both eternal and yet temporal as well in time? How can he be both the creator and yet also the begotten son of a human mother? How can Jesus be both limitless as the God of the universe and yet limited as a human being? Of all of the absurdities that religion seems to offer us, it seems like this has got to be the worst, right? It it seems absurd to us. The advent, that is the coming of Christ into this world, seems to offend human reason in a lot of ways. It offends our religious sensibilities about who we perceive God to be. In fact, so offensive is this doctrine of the incarnation, as we call it, that church councils have been summoned to discuss this this question. Creeds have been written to try to answer it, to deal with it. And anathemas have been pronounced against those who reject it. So as we enter the the second week of Advent, we're celebrating Jesus, the mighty God. Advent is a celebration of what theologians call the hypostatic union. There's a big word, but really what that means is the joining of God and man, the joining of the divine and human substance in the person of Jesus Christ. So behind the images of the Christ child in the manger surrounded by adoring shepherds and angels, is this profound and complex theology, this this complex theological reality, you could say. Advent is a celebration of God's mighty power at work in and through Jesus Christ. Now, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read that the Christ, and that is the Messiah, the Davidic ruler, uh, the one who is, is to come and rule over Israel, we read that this person is wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, we looked at Jesus as wonderful counselor. This week, I want to focus on the Christ as mighty God. Today, I want to look at how God, in his mighty power, gave us what we might call the paradox of the incarnation. I want to look at how the paradox of the indwelling of the mighty God in human form is, in fact, good news. And that's really what I want you to take away from this. This is good news, good news for all people. The paradox of the incarnation of the mighty God is, in fact, the only possible solution or response to the paradox of the human condition. 
So like I said, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we will look at uh, verses 15 through 23. I'll go ahead and read this. I think the text will be up on the jumbotron as well uh, for you to follow along. Otherwise, keep your Bibles open. We'll, We'll be in this text today. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He, that is, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word revealed to us, for our edification, for our instruction, even for our our correction. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us uh, during this time of study, that we would come to grasp uh, new and profound truths about who you are, that we would come to know you better, that we would put your word into practice in order to bring glory to your name in this community, in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the text of, of Colossians uh, chapter 1 presents us with a very strange sort of person, a person who possesses all the qualities and characteristics of the divine, of, of God, and all the qualities and characteristics of uh, a human person bound up together in, in one person. So this is a, a strange sort of person indeed, but what we see here in, in Jesus Christ is not a contradiction Rather, this is a paradox, and I want to spend some time uh, looking at this, this idea this morning. This is not an absurdity. It's not a logical absurdity. It's, it's a paradox, and here's the difference. Now, a contradiction takes place when we affirm the truth of two uh, propositions that aren't true, or when we affirm the truth of two propositions uh, that cannot be reconciled. So contradictions are self-defeating. I exist, and yet I don't exist. That's a contradiction. My brother is jealous of me because I'm an only child. That's a contradiction. That's an example of, of contradiction, okay? A paradox, on the other hand, is the affirmation of two propositions, that is, two ideas, two concepts that are both true, they're both evident, They're both intuitive to us, and yet they don't reconcile easily. So an example of this would be the the incarnation that we're talking about. 
Jesus as both human and mighty God in one person. Now, this concept is not easy to understand. I get that. It's even harder to explain, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not even going to attempt to explain it, because the danger with that, when you start getting out into philosophical territory, you begin to speculate, and then you begin to say things that are not biblical and not true, and you get yourself into a lot of trouble. What we want to do is affirm what Scripture affirms. We want to stay with what God has revealed in His Word. We want to affirm what history itself affirms when we look at Christ living among us, his miracles, his life, his death, his resurrection. We want to stay there. But I still want to try to explain in some ways why the paradox of the incarnation works, why we can live with this paradox. So two things I want to look at this morning, and you'll have that in your your bulletin. Uh, You'll be able to follow along for those taking notes, is that God's mighty power in Jesus Christ, in some ways, pushes us to the limits of human understanding. And that's okay. We're going to look at that. Uh, Next, God's mighty power reconciles God and man through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a very important, very simple concept, but very important thing that we'll, we'll spend some time on this morning as well. So Colossians 1. Let's get back into that, uh, that text. Colossians 1 shows us how Jesus is divine, how Jesus is human, and how Jesus unites divine and human qualities in order that human beings might once again stand in the presence of a holy God. Because the idea here is that we are fallen, right? We are sinful. We are unholy. We are imperfect. God is holy. God is perfect. It it doesn't work. The relationship doesn't work. Jesus stands between us and God and enables us to have relationship with the God of the universe. So look at the language of this text, and how the Son's divine qualities are elucidated in the passage. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The Son is the means by which the invisible God can be known to man. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, what we see there is that God remained hidden from the people of Israel. A classic example of this, you go to to the latter part of Exodus, we've seen how the the people of Israel have been led out of Egypt by God's power. He's part of the Red Sea. He's brought them out of Egypt. He brings them to Sinai. Moses ascends the the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the tablets of the law. And while Moses is on the mountain, he asks God, can I see your glory? Do you remember what God tells him? Exodus 33, no one can look upon the face of God and live, right? And so Moses is, eventually God allows, uh, allows Moses to see the glory, but only a shadow of the shadow. He hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by, and only the backside of God's glory shines down on Moses. He sees a shadow of the shadow of God's glory. And when he comes down from the mountain, when he descends back among the people of Israel, he has to wear a veil over his face, Even then, he's still shining with the glory of God, a shadow of a shadow. The people of of Israel could not look on Moses' face. They were seeing a shadow of a shadow of a shadow, and still it was overwhelming. No one can see God and live. God is a holy and perfect being. Unperfect or imperfect, unholy people cannot stand in his presence. But then we come to Christ. John chapter 1, verse 18. It reminds us that we, we can see the Father. If we've seen the Son, we've seen the Father. 
He who has seen the Son, he who knows the Son, knows the Father. Jesus bridges that gap. He is the image of the invisible. He makes God known. So that's the first thing we see in Colossians 1. Next, we see that Jesus is the firstborn. The Son is the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does that mean? Because clearly, the Son is also the creator. He's created the world. How is he the firstborn? What does that refer to? And again, you have to understand the context here, the larger context of Scripture. Okay, in the Old Testament, what was the firstborn? What did the firstborn receive? Well, the, the birthright, the blessing, the inheritance, the family name, the possessions of the Father, a position of status, a position of authority. Christ has received that authority, the firstborn over all creation. The Son is the creator, verse 16. He's the sustainer of creation, verse 17. He's the head of the church, his body, verse 18. These qualities are reserved for divinity alone. These things cannot apply to a human being. The Son is divine. Colossians 1 reminds us that the Christ is, in fact, God. But the Christ is also human. He possesses a physical human body that could be killed. We read that later on in the text, right? He was crucified. He was put to death on a cross. He was a man, a human that could be crucified. His spirit, his human spirit, was raised to life. The text of Colossians, in fact, defends the idea that God took on a human nature and that the divine logos, the archetype of humanity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Son is everything that God is and everything that man is meant to be. And that's, that's really important here. The Son is everything that God is and everything that man is meant to be. He's the second Adam, the perfect man. The Son is God himself. He represents God's mighty power. But again, how do we reconcile this strange paradox? How does one plus one somehow equal one? How do we reconcile the logic of Jesus' dual nature? And I think what we need to do here is simply accept the paradox, and I, I hope that doesn't sound like too much of a cop-out on my part, but we have to accept the paradox. And the reason we can accept the paradox of the incarnation is because we accept all kinds of paradox all the time. We live every day with dozens, if not hundreds, of paradoxes. Paradox is simply part of life on this earth under the sun. A few examples. As a missionary in France, uh, having lived in France, here's the thing, the French love paradox. They live in paradox. Everything about France is paradoxical. Um, to have a visa to live in France, I have to have an address. I have to have a, a contract on an apartment or house. But in order to get the contract on the house or apartment, I have to have a visa. You see how that works? The French love this stuff. So they, they create these, these impossible scenarios, and yet somehow it all works out. Somehow I've been living there for 11 years, and it, it all came out. Even though it's logically, it's, it seems impossible. There's an example of paradox, right? It's true that everything I say is false, right? There's an example of paradox. I'll let you think about that one a little bit. It's, it's true, and it's false, right? How does that work? It's a grammatical paradox. The human condition is a paradox. 
Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a theist or not, you have to admit that we, as human beings, are paradoxical in many ways. We're great, we're creative, we're intelligent, we're, we're wonderful people, right? We do all kinds of amazing things, and yet we are wretched. We're capable of, of harming others, we're capable of sin, we're capable of destruction. We use our creativity for good and for bad. This is a biblical concept. We see it all over Scripture. Uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, and I quote him a lot, I, I realize, but he says this about man. Man is la gloire et le rebut de l'univers. Don't you just love how that sounds? Man is the glory and the refuse of the universe. And he's right. You are a beautiful, wonderful piece of human garbage. That's the idea, right? <laughs> That's what we are as human beings. It's a paradox. We live in paradox. Here's another one, the skeptical paradox. This is one of my favorites. I've been working on this problem for, for a while. Philosophers actually have been working on this for over 2,000 years. Nobody really has a solution. And here's the problem. You know that there's an external world reality, right? You know that you're sitting in a chair this morning at Bergen Park Church, listening to me ramble on about paradox, Right? You know that there are people around you. You know that you see things, you hear things. There's an external world reality. And yet, at the same time, you don't know that you're not an invaded brain or, some, or a victim of some skeptical scenario. Now, just to clarify, if you've seen The Matrix, if you've seen the, the film The Matrix, this guy is living his life in this pod, hooked up to a computer. Everything he sees around him is simply just being fed into his, his brain by the supercomputer. Okay, for philosophers, that's a real problem. Nobody has a solution to that problem. It's a skeptical paradox, okay? Philosophers, like I said, have been working on, on that one for a long time. The freedom paradox. Okay, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, again, are you simply a victim of some sovereign kind of situation around you? Uh, Mother Nature, for example. Are you a product simply of your genes, DNA, uh, your environment, your upbringing? Is everything you think and do simply pre-programmed by the universe? Some biologists, philosophers, physicists believe that that's the case. You're not really free to make choices. Everything you do is pre-programmed by the universe. Now, the Christian version of that is God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. How do we reconcile these two things, right? So again, it's an example of paradox. There's the moral paradox. There are a number of moral paradoxes. My favorite, is the problem of the corpulent fellow. Now, imagine you are exploring a cave along with a bunch of your friends along a coastline. And you're in this cave, and suddenly the tide begins to rise behind you. The tide is coming in, uh, moving in, and you're trapped in this cave. However, there's one place where you can escape, the small hole that you can scramble through, but the corpulent fellow among you gets there first and gets stuck in the hole. Now, one of you has a stick of dynamite in your backpack, right? <laughs> Because obviously, if you're, if you're exploring a cave with your friends, you're going to carry dynamite. It's, it makes perfect sense. So, but bear with me here for the example. Um, so you have to make a choice. Do you blast your friend out of this hole and thus save the rest of your group? Or do you let the others die and, and allow him to live? Uh, we find ourselves, maybe not in that kind of paradox, but moral paradoxes happen. Do you take a life to save a life? Do you tell a lie to save a life? Sometimes keeping the law requires breaking the law, right? 
Sometimes doing the right thing requires doing something wrong. We may find ourselves in these kinds of paradoxes at times. So my point here is that the incarnation is simply one more difficult concept among many. The paradox of the incarnation should not be difficult to live with. In fact, we need to embrace it with joy. We need to embrace it with joy as good news for all people because the mighty God of the universe became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's mighty power may stretch the limits of human understanding, I realize that, but it leads us to affirm that this is not a logical problem. Rather, this is the only logical solution to the human condition. It's the only solution. Consider again how the text of Colossians speaks of God and man. In verses 21 through 23, in fact, you can go back to verse 20, 20 through 23, we read that we humans were alienated from God, that we were enemies of God. Our fallen condition has made us unable to resist the thoughts and actions that hurt others and that ultimately offend God's holiness. How then do we enjoy relationship with God? How do we enter back into relationship with God? By God's mighty power alone. Verse 20 speaks of the Son as the peacemaker. Verse 22 tells us that he's responsible for our reconciliation with God. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, right? We sing these lyrics at Christmas time. There's a lot of truth in that. These are important concepts. The Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, stands between God and man as mediator, as we read in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what the Apostle Paul is referring to. When God looks upon people of faith, he sees the goodness and the righteousness of Christ, which covers their sin. Okay, and when man looks to God, we look to Jesus Christ who intercedes for us and enables us and enables our pleas for love and mercy to be heard by our Lord. The paradox of the incarnation, like I said, is the only solution. It's not just a, a, a good idea or one idea among many. This is the only possible solution. God's mighty power reconciles God and man. Jesus must be God. He must be man. He must be God because only God in his perfection and power can overcome the curse of sin. The solution has to be adapted to the problem. Okay, when we think about the Allies landing at Normandy on D-Day, there were a lot of people involved in that operation, right? 150,000 troops landed in Normandy uh, during that time. Uh, 11,000 aircraft were used during that operation. 7,000 ships and landing craft were used during that operation. 10,000 tons of bombs were dropped on northern France during that operation. In order to defeat the modern and well-equipped German war machine, the solution had to be adapted to the problem. The Allies didn't just send a few guys with cap guns and that sort of thing. They sent everything they had. You, you see what I mean here? They sent everything they had. In the same way, God sent a solution adapted to the problem of spiritual bondage. God himself came into the world. Only the power of God could undo the power of sin and death. Or think of it this way. Imagine that on your wedding day, 
Your spouse-to-be sends a stand-in or a substitute to take the vows because he or she wants to stay home and relax and watch TV and do something else. So they send a stand-in, just somebody to, to fill in, to put on the suit or whatever and, 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 and say the thing and then hand over the ring and, and leave. Imagine how absurd, how egregious something like that would be. For those of you who have been married or who hope to be married someday, think about that. It's absurd. God himself came to his bride, the church. He loved her. He gave himself up for her to purify her and to present her to himself as a radiant church free of stain and wrinkle. Ephesians chapter 5. He didn't send a stand-in. He didn't send a substitute. God himself came into the world. He was the sacrificial lamb. Jesus had to be God. You see how this works? Only an infinite being can forgive an infinite debt. Only a perfect being can respond to our imperfection. Only a holy God can make unholy beings holy. Only the creator can repair the creation. Only the almighty and absolute can absolve the anthropic affliction of sin. I wanted a little bit of alliteration there. But you see the, 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 what's going on here. Jesus had to be the mighty God. But Jesus had to be man as well. Only a man can rightly pay the debt accumulated by men. This is why Hebrews 10 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for the sin of man. Animal sacrifice was only a brutal foreshadowing of the sacrifice that only a perfect man could make on behalf of mankind. Man owes a debt to God that only man can pay. Now imagine that you owe a lot of money. You owe the bank on a, let's say a 10, let's say a hundred million dollar loan on a ridiculous, huge loan. However, to pay that debt, you go to your closet, you rummage through your old Monopoly game, you come up with some Monopoly money, you, you band it together with rubber bands, you put it in a briefcase, and you take it down to the bank to pay your debt. Problem solved, right? Wrong. Why? Because false money can't pay a real debt. In the same way, a false man, a pseudo-man, could never pay man's debt. Only a man could bear man's punishment. Jesus had to be a man. The mighty God had to take on the nature of a man to save us. The more I read the Bible, the more I ponder these ideas, the doctrine of salvation, the more amazed I am at God's plan to dwell among us full of grace and truth. The coming of the God-man into the world is not just a cute story that we tell on Christmas. It's the only logical possibility as a solution to our, our problem, our separation from God. The doctrine of the incarnation should not trouble us. It should not embarrass us. It should lead us to rejoice. It should lead us to have joy in our hearts, in our minds, uh, it should lead us to the cross in faith and in repentance to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to cast all else aside. We worship a mighty God, right? We worship a mighty God who through the incarnation can identify with us in every way. God understands our temptation because he himself was tempted. God understands our difficulty. He himself faced difficulty. 
Through the incarnation, God knows what it means to be fragile, to be afraid, to be alone, right? He, he understands it. The mighty God lived out human weakness, suffered under the effects of sin, though he himself was sinless. So whatever you're struggling with, God understands it. Whatever you're suffering with, God has lived it. Whatever trouble we face, God will repair it, will heal it. The paradox of the incarnation is good news because the creator entered creation. The king became a servant. The almighty became frail. The Lord of the universe values you so much that he came to live among you in order to give his life as a ransom for many. The power of God that created the heavens and earth, that parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel to pass, that performed mighty acts, that overturned kings and empires, that power was displayed in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you might live. We worship a truly mighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this profound doctrine of the incarnation. We thank you that the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us, that you came full of grace and truth. We thank you, Lord, for the mighty power of God displayed at Christmas, and we thank you, Lord, for the mighty power that you display in our lives every day as you guide us in truth, as you care for us, as you comfort us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.